Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody Award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Great America Show. President Biden has sent Vice President Kamala Harris to Eastern Europe on a three-day mission. Today in Warsaw, as the White House tries to assess what aid and assistance the United States can provide Ukraine and other countries in the region. As the fighting rages all across Ukraine and casualties and deaths mount, talks go on between the two sides. Turkey announcing it's hosting the talks today between representatives of Russia and Ukraine. And in the suburbs of Kiev overnight, Ukraine defenders in hand-to-hand combat with Russian troops. The intensity of the war is rising and rising dramatically, and reports persist that President Putin is growing increasingly frustrated with the slow pace of the advance of his forces trying to take control of key cities, including, of course, Kiev. Joining us now, retired Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council, National Security Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. General Kellogg, it is great to have you with us on the Great America Show. Uh, I'd first like to get your reaction, if I may, uh, to the diplomatic developments, that is, uh, Volodymyr uh, uh, Zelensky uh, saying point blank, he's ready to compromise and uh, forego, forego NATO membership, your, re- your reaction. Yeah, Lou, thanks for having me. Look, I think it was a, a great call by Zelensky. He kind of realizes there's, he's looking for a, a diplomatic way out of it. Um, this is something very candidly I would have preferred they have done months ago uh, to kind of take the pressure off Zelensky. While well, at the same time he does that, you build him up and make, make him an, an unsinkable aircraft carrier with all the armament armament that he's got. But I think that was a good call on his part. He also kind of left open the door for the autonomous regions at all uh, as well to to stay autonomous. We'll see where it goes. You know, Zelensky, to me, though, is is really coming out of this very well as a Churchillian leader. When you saw what he did today in front of the British Parliament, uh, he actually sort of captured Churchill's speech about fighting on the beaches, and it was, it was pretty good. And he's proven to be a tre- tremendously adept wartime leader. You know, this is the guy that told Putin, you know, if you attack, you'll see my face, you won't see my back. And I give him credit for that one. Yep. And I, I think he's rallied his nation. I don't think, I, candidly, Lou, I don't think, uh, if Zelensky wasn't there, I don't think they'd be fighting like they are. But Zelensky's given him a reason to fight, and it's paying off. And now he's thrown a diplomatic gauntlet down, and we'll see if Putin picks up on it. I'm not too sure Putin will, though. And the reason for that, Lou, is... is He's really been embarrassed by the performance of his military. He has not performed well at all. And I think he's really underestimated Zelensky. And now he sees Zelensky as a foe. 
And with with everything going forward, he may revert to his KGB roots and just want to crush uh, Ukraine. We'll know, I think we'll know in the next 72 hours, because if he starts a ground assault uh, using heavy artillery into Kiev, a city that's 2,000 years old, Zelensky will have his answer. Yeah, he'll have his answer. I, I and as to Zelensky, I, I agree with you about his leadership. I do wish that he would have acknowledged this at the beginning, before, well, before yeah. the beginning of the invasion, because the position uh, that is uh, being willing to uh, forego NATO membership, NATO had made it clear that they weren't going to bring Ukraine in as a member at that point. Uh, and secondly, uh, the, the autonomy of those regions was de facto uh, a reality. Uh, the Donbass region uh, was Russian, is uh, Russian speaking. It was then. Uh, it, it's hard to understand why it took Zelensky so long to come to this point, frankly. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, the only nation that I'm aware of that's never given back territory that they've got, they've seized has been the Russians. And I, and I, I really wish, and you're right about Zelensky saying that early on, because I think it would have prevented a lot of what's happening. And there was a, there was a whole school of thought that NATO should have come out and said, look, they're not ready to be part of NATO. They're not considered part of NATO. And this is when, and nobody picked up on this. This is where I would have brought in President Anista of Finland, who has lived like this since, you know, the, the Finns and the Russians have sure. had this uneasy relationship since the 30s. But they're non-aligned. And they, they've had, they're, they're a sovereign nation. And I don't know why Zelensky couldn't have said that. It's interesting that, that uh, uh, Henry Kissinger uh, years ago made that comment that Ukraine should never be part of NATO. They should be the bridge between East and West. He actually said that in an interview and wrote an op-ed on that where he said this is where we shouldn't go, bringing them into NATO. He was right. And if we had done that earlier, if he had done that earlier, if we'd said that earlier, if we'd said you're not going to be part of it, it takes all 30 nations to agree for somebody to become part of NATO. If one or two of the nations had said, I'm never going to vote that way, at least stall the effort, then maybe things would have been different. Yeah, and, and I know that there's going to be a lot of discussion in this country, irrespective of whether Putin uh, seizes the opportunity to, to resolve this peacefully or not. Uh, he, there's going to be a lot of discussion about why in the world NATO uh, the European leaders didn't somehow coalesce uh, uh, amongst at least one of those leaders to be a spokesman. Uh, we have Macron, who has stepped up, and that's terrific. We have Boris Johnson, who has been more megaphone than, than, than statesman. Uh, I, I don't know if you agree with that, but it's my judgment. It, it's sort of a strange moment uh, in European history, where Macron has stepped out, but there isn't really a leader for the European Union in this in this conflict. Yeah, and when, since and Mer they they talk about Angela Merkel, you know, the own Chancellor of Germany, she would have held that role. No, she wouldn't have because Putin and Merkel didn't get along either. So you had to find somebody who's the outlier. And Macron kind of filled filled in on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though Putin has kind of pushed him away. But more importantly, when you talk about the leader of NATO, it's what we have not done, and we have not been uh, 
you know, the leader of NATO. We we talk about it a lot. You know, we beat our chest because, you know, our contributions into the alliance and reinforcing and and oh, by the way, we're we're lighting up the Kennedy Center in the colors of Ukraine. We feel good about it. But nobody has pushed the diplomatic side. That's the reason why I thought it was interesting again today that President Xi has reached out to Macron and Schultz to try to work this. I think you're going to see the the intermediary are going to be the Chinese, uh, and which is kind of frightening because they're so closely aligned to the Russians today. But there, there isn't a leader. There hasn't been a leader come out. And I think you're right about Boris Johnson. He's got his own problems. But other than that, there's not a leader who's come forward. Uh, and Schultz is too, really too new to really make any impact at all. And he, and he backtracked today. You know, he's all for NATO and raising his d- d- defense levels to two percent of GDP, like they agreed to in the Wales. Uh, declaration, but also today he said, "Well, we're not going to cut back on Russian oil and energy." You know, he just undercut what we're trying to do, exactly, because uh, they're going to have to wean themselves on it. But but they just kind of said to the Russians, "Well, we're going to be really tough. We're going to raise our defense expenditure to levels that were actually less than the middle of the Cold War, but we're going to keep buying your oil." Yeah, uh, which is, by the way, doing nothing, as you uh, you're, as you're implying. I, I, I my question becomes what will be the result on the United States. I always think of everything, uh, forgive me, uh, in America first principles. And I don't understand for the life of me, the US interest in Ukraine. Uh, can you help me out on that? Because we're sitting here two weeks into the, into the war and uh, it's still unclear. And President Biden hasn't articulated why he's banning Russian oil, what the effect will be on the American people, which I think will be horrific, frankly, will only add to hyperinflation and is more drama than diplomacy. Uh, As a matter of fact, the entire this entire period, uh, President Biden has uh, receded from almost public view and notice, certainly uh, as a as a leader in NATO, as you pointed out. You know what in the world is he talking about today? He talks like a neighborhood thug, saying, "You know, we will never, ever accept a, a Russian takeover of Ukraine." Really, Mr. President? Just exactly what does that mean, and why are you talking tough now? Yeah, remember that um, that uh, in 2014, when when uh, Russia took. Um, Crimea, who the vice president was, it was Joe Biden. Um, you know, when you look at it, it's sort of the way I look at Ukraine is both post and pre-invasion. Pre-invasion, I said, look, I was a big believer that Ukraine ought to be a neutral country, sort of like mm-hmm. Finland is, forswear uh, NATO membership, become the bridge to east and west, continue to modernize, we'll continue to arm them. The trouble is once that Putin did what he did, and invaded Ukraine and started doing massive bombardments of civilian areas, he has become, to me, a, a real tyrant. And it said, I, I carry this so far. I said, okay, now that you've crossed that line, you know, my attitude is, you know, we're going to have to deal with you because I don't know where you're going to go with this. You know, we cannot tolerate a world leader doing what you're doing. It wasn't a little hunk of territory was taken. I was okay, frankly, when he did the Donbass region because it's primarily Russian-speaking. I understand it was part of Ukraine, right. but take that piece and go home and agree with the Minsk agreement and, and do on a, you know do you know do what you want to do. But when he started going against the second largest country in Ukraine, 
and using pretty significant artillery and bombing of, uh, of, of centers, of population centers, it'll keep crossed the line with me. So it's one of those pre and post. You know, I can be something pre, that this is what you should do, but once you cross that line, then I look at it a little bit differently because I don't think the world should tolerate somebody doing what he's doing. Not so much he's going into another country, which is important, but the barbaric way he's doing it. I mean, it is different than having two gladiators fight it out in the middle of the arena. You know, he's taking it and he's putting millions of people at risk, forcing millions of people, millions of people to leave Ukraine. The nice thing is about it, those people will come back to Ukraine because that's their home. They're not going to stay in another country. They won't stay in Poland. Uh, unlike some people, they will return home because that is their home. Right. That home uh, is far less than what it once was. Uh, it, it, it really doesn't have much of a roof over its head for millions of uh, Ukrainians. Uh, the water supply is uh, has been in some areas just completely destroyed. Uh, sewage, uh, sanitation, non-existent uh, sewage treatment, and it, it's a very difficult situation right now. And it's one thing to say we won't accept this; it's quite another to do something about it. What on earth can we do? Yeah, well, I, I you know. <laughs> I'm hoping for a diplomatic solution to figure out how they get out of this because the Putin has put himself in a, in a really bad position. And what I mean by that is he had a lot of talk about taking Ukraine. You know, if this was a prize fight and we were, let's say, round seven and you were on a judge's scorecard, right now Ukraine's ahead. They're winning the fight. And it's pretty clear. And I don't think he can can stand that both personally and for his nation, to see his nation hit the way it's being hit by Ukrainians, <laughs> giving him absolutely you know, no respect. Frankly, if I was Putin, I'd probably double up my bodyguards right now because they're not performing well at all. Their, their leadership is not good. Their combined arms tactics are no good. And then he's using weapons, which are clearly showing him to the rest of the world to be the thug that he is. So he's got a real problem coming out of this. And right now, i got to tell you, Lou, if he goes for a diplomatic solution, he's admitting that he didn't succeed. He'll he'll phrase it a different way. But he's going to look at the entire world and say, well, you know, we just, this is all we wanted. No, he, take, he took 90% of his army and threw them against Ukraine. He took the best units he had and threw them against Ukraine. And he's coming up with zeros right now. So I don't know if he can survive that himself, uh, because eventually the oligarchs are going to get him, or the generals are going to get him, or mm -hmm. the FSB is going to get him, because they're not going to tolerate their nation being dragged economically to where it's at right now. And they're being hit horribly with economics, and I don't think they want to go through this much longer. We're not going to back off from this for a, for a while. Now, I, a couple of things on that, if I may, General. One is sanctions don't work. Uh, I, I've never heard of a single instance, I know of no single instance, in which sanctions brought against a country have worked in terms of exerting the will uh, of the uh, the nation sanctioning another. Do you? I mean, I don't know of a... I mean, Putin has been yeah. under sanctions yeah. for years, and he has the yeah. second you most know, powerful military in the world. Yeah, you know, it's funny. In four years in the White House, President Trump said the same thing. He used to. He and Steve Mnuchin used to go at it all the time, and he basically said exactly what you said. And you're right, because the entire time I was there, and we seem to have sanctioned a lot of countries and people, that they never did work. And I, because I'm like you, I'm not not a big believer in sanctions, because I I never saw them do anything. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. you, you look at the Iranians. You know, the Iranians were able to withstand it. Uh, and, and now and they've, so got, a, they've got a North missile program, an advanced missile program, <laughs> and, and they're approximately, you can argue the point, but within six months of having a nuclear weapon at any time. They've taken their uranium enrichment and doubled it uh, in terms of percentage uh, and are only months away from developing a nuclear weapon if they so choose. Uh, so when yeah. we talk about sanctions, the first thing we should do is, a, as to me, it seems as a predicate to the discussion is establish that, hey, sanctions don't work. So, Mr. Biden, get off your high horse and, and cut the, you know, the thuggish rhetoric and acknowledge the fact that you're not doing a thing to change the circumstances on the ground for the Ukrainian people or indeed involved even in the centerpiece of negotiations for the with the European Union and Vladimir Putin. Yeah, your reaction. Yeah, to that. yeah. Well, you but you're operating under a premise that anything that President Biden does will will impact Putin. Putin doesn't care about Joe Biden. No, no, no I'm not operating under I mean, that he, predicate. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, let me be yeah, very clear. Yeah, so, I, I'm saying to you that the so man I, is, I'm saying to you the man is right now the protagonist in this uh, in this drama. He is the villain. He is the person that has to be dealt with, whether we like him, we dislike him, whether his people like him or dislike him. But we have to deal with the reality yeah. that he's a dictator, has absolute control of that nation. And he has yeah. possessed that control for 22 years, longer than any well, other yeah. leader of a, yeah. of a major power. And he's not going to go anywhere. I mean, as long as his health holds, he's looking for another 12 years. Right. Because he's changed the Constitution that he can serve two yeah. more terms as president. And the presidency in Russia is a six-year term. So so he can last another 12 years, and he knows that. And as long as he holds the people in the military together, he's okay. That's the reason why I don't think he can afford to fail in Ukraine to any degree. I think he's got to. he's basically got to go to some type of culmination and declare victory somehow. And and maybe Zelensky gave him that out today, maybe by saying he's not going to be a member of, of NATO, and, and, and I'm not too sure there's not going to be some type of rump state. You know, the worst case I could see, not the best, but the worst case, you could see a division of Ukraine into West Ukraine and East Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't think I don't think uh, Putin's got the legs, the military legs, to get to the west, the way his army's performing. But he could pretty well take the Dnieper River, call that a border, and say, "Okay, you can have that side. I've got this side." Uh, you know, keep the capital of Kiev and Kharkiv, and say you've got everything else. I, that is, a, to me, the worst case scenario for us. And maybe that be be his best case scenario going forward. We'll just have to see. I think it's going to play out in another week or two. Yeah, and how do you think it's going to work out? Because I can't see, and, I, and that's because you and I are sort of coming at this, I think, from the same direction. And that is, we have very limited military options. We have limited leadership, whether it's a European Union or the United States. Uh, and even as ineffective as his military has been against expectations, they have nonetheless invaded Ukraine and are in control of vast swaths of the nation. Uh, by the way, they've done so much damage with their uh, artillery and their missiles and their rockets uh, that uh, it, it, I'm not sure what they've gained by the effort. Are you? No, I think, uh, you know, it, well, first of all, they've, they've truly turned off the population. I mean, it, he's going to inhabit the uh, the eastern part of Ukraine to a population for the most part that hates him. Just because they're Russian speaking doesn't mean they're Russian supporting. 
and there were reports there were some people that were actually Russian supported have changed their their whole attitude about Putin. So he's got a he will have a potential hostile state that he takes over, but he's he's committed himself so far, you know, it's it he's gonna have to do some type of culminating event. You know, it's in the when I was in the military there was a thing called river crossing operations and I said once you make the decision to cross a river in combat, you cross the river. It is never good to get in the middle of the river and go, Man, maybe this isn't such a good idea, I need to go back. Right. You know, once you cross it you start going and that's where he's kind of at. So his end state was I think take of all Ukraine. I don't think I just don't think he can get there. And when you say where I think it ends, I think it's gonna end the critical part is going to be the next few days what happens in kiev if he if he starts to bombard kiev with with weaponry that is advanced and killing civilians and destroying a 2000 year old city i think the the entire world will be so appalled by that that he'll he's dug a hole that maybe they'll have to replace him but if he was able to succeed that without doing that and come to a diplomatic solution and that's maybe what the chinese are trying to do by helping him talk to somebody that may that may give him an out. So I think when I, it's going to determine, is he really going to go into Kiev? Because I tell you, Lou, if you're in a military, you do not want to fight in cities. It eats your units up. It sure. takes time to do it, effort to do it, and your casualty numbers go way up. And uh, it's clear that's precisely the plan of the resistance and the re- the remaining Ukrainian military. Do we have good intelligence on how many casualties the Ukrainians have have had to take, uh, how many the Russians have suffered? You know, Lou, I don't think we'd add. I think there's a dude. I think the fog of war is there where you don't really know. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been involved in a world where body count was a primary thing you had in Vietnam, and it was always wrong. You know, you counted blood trails by two or blood trails by three, whatever it is. So you really don't know. I think the bigger number to track, and it's easier to do because you've got overhead and persistent surveillance, surveillance, is don't look at the body count, but you look at the equipment count. See how much equipment is being damaged, and then you can interpolate that as as where where it goes. But right now, I take everything that is said by Ukrainians, everything said by the Russians with a grain of salt. I said, no, I'm not going to buy into that. Uh, on the numbers of soldiers being lost, but it's but it's interesting to watch the equipment. Now that I can, you can quantify because if you you can count up, okay, he's lost a hundred tanks. Well, that equivalence there's an equivalence to maybe three battle tactical uh, battalion tactical units, and the BTGs, the battalion tactical groups. I'm sorry, are are what they really use as a maneuver forces. You can kind of count up, and then you can count up uh, the efficiency of those units degraded by the loss of the equipment. So I wouldn't worry about the people. The people is like, don't even go there. Yeah. So what I'm trying to understand is that we saw 150,000 troops mass on the border of Ukraine, whether they were in Belarus, Moldova, uh, or uh, in Russia. I'm not really clear about how many of those troops uh, are positioned, uh, where those forces are, uh, how much is armor, how much is infantry, uh, how much are you know, uh, airborne. Uh, and, I, and I'm getting none of that from, uh, if you will, cable news or from uh, any, anyone, including the BBC. Yeah, you get, there's a good rule of thumb in, in, in the militaries, and most militaries are the same when it comes to it. It's basically three to one. Three to one meaning combat support and service to mm-hmm. fighters. So if you if you come with a force of that, if, if you're looking at a, a number, 
that is probably combat forces of about 65, 70,000, and the rest are in support. That's where he's bogging down because his support units are not doing well in supporting the, the fighters forward. So it's really, when you look at numbers, you kind of have to make a determination, okay, what number am I looking at? The combat forces, that's when I made the comment about the cities because logistics troops don't fight in cities. The combat troops fight in cities, and they'll eat those numbers up in a heartbeat because you, when you're used to use a battalion tactical group on this, you know, in this large of an area, you have to shrink that when you come into a city. And the rest of those are support guys. And so it's, it, when you look at it, you just can't say, oh, he's got an army of 200,000. They came across the border. That's a lot of troops because it's not a lot of troops when you look in the grand scheme of things. You know, the difference if you have a million-man army, which they used to have, but they don't have that size army anymore. The So what I'm trying to, I guess, generals to get to, is where are we? Because I don't say that the United States has the wherewithal uh, to exert uh, a, an outcome uh, in Ukraine, either militarily or diplomatically. I don't see that the Europeans do, uh, and I don't, and I don't believe that the Euro Ukrainians, based on what I've seen, can con continue, despite their valiant effort. Uh, and their defense of their homeland against these superior numbers and superior firepower and weaponry, how they can hold out much longer. And Putin, who, as you correctly stated, I think, uh, has to be embarrassed by the performance of his military. Nonetheless, that military is in Ukraine and is in control of people and in control of uh, land, territory. How in the world do we, and, and is it reasonable to think that we can extricate these combatants and step back, pause, and reach a rational, if there is such a thing available, a rational resolution of this conflict? Well, I think it's going to be hard to do, Lou. And you, you said the comment. We don't have a military role. Ukraine's not a member of NATO, so Article 5 doesn't apply. An attack on one is an attack on all. Right. And, and we, so we're standing back, and I don't think we should get involved there. I would hope we don't involve any U.S. troops or even NATO troops in, in there. I would, hope really even our leaders, I would hope that even our leaders, as awful as they have shown themselves to be in every policy decision that has been taken under this administration, would not be that stupid. That's what I I pray, and I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, yeah, well, well, and I'm hoping that, that one of the reasons why I don't want Putin to keep going towards the West is because wars are generally started through miscalculation or mistakes, and you don't want to get them so close to NATO. Somebody does something stupid. That's the reason I'm not for a no-fly zone of NATO as well. And frankly, he doesn't need one right now because he's, he's doing quite well without having a no-fly zone. Uh, and you look at what he's done on the, on the failings of it, you know, it's, it's almost like, okay, if you're a grand strategist and you're looking at the map, they come from the south, they've come from the east, and come from the north. Man, he the thing they say in the military is, wait your main effort, meaning put the maximum amount of troops you've got in where you want to go. And where they wanted to go was to decapitate the government, in other words, eliminate the leadership, Zelensky, and capture the cap capital. It's sort of like you know, capture the flag, you know, and they didn't do either. And so he didn't even wait his attack well. But we don't have a military role, and I would boy, I would really recommend doing that. I said, no, we can give support, but don't even think about putting U.S. troops on the ground anywhere near there because it's not our fight. It's, it's a Euro If anybody needs to put groups on the ground, it's a European fight. 
but of course they're all aligned to NATO, so that's that's as bad as it is. But but this is one of those where you almost you know you cheer on Ukrainians and you help them out any way you can, but you're gonna have to stay away from put, putting troops on the ground. And I again, like I said earlier, Lou, I really mean this. I think. You know, Putin is going to have to figure out how to get out of this diplomatically because he's not doing well. And every day that it goes by, he's in fact losing. And I don't think he as a nation, he as a leader, uh, can survive uh, that embarrassment. I know he won't as a leader. I've said, I've, that's why I said a, you know, a few minutes ago, better double up your bodyguards. You may need him. Yeah, and I, I want to get your opinion on this uh, business of the, the no-fly zone. Uh, because, I mean, that is straightforwardly, I think, the answer is we do not want to get involved in that. Yet, at Ramstein uh, Air Force Base, uh, the Poles are sending their uh, their MiG-30s over to, uh, to be turned over to the United States for the purpose of putting Ukrainian pilots in them and flying them over Ukraine. Putin has said outright, that that kind of direct assistance and a no-fly zone, whether it be or any direct engagement with uh, Russian forces, will be considered an act of war. Your reaction to what they're they're doing right now, they being the yeah. United States and the uh, and the poles. Yeah, you know what they did. They, they transferred the, the the MiG-29 is their advanced air-to-air fighter. It's not a uh, Generation 5 fighter like our F-22 or F-35, but it'll match up uh, with, with the Russians quite well. But bringing them back to, to Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany, said, you know, first of all, that is a base that's on German soil. I wonder if anybody even talked to the Germans about it. And, and I said, it makes no sense to me why you did that, because you're right. You just brought yourself into the fight. Tony Blinken said, yeah, go ahead. We'll transfer him. He said, well, figure a way to do it. I don't take it somewhere else. You know, take it to Finland, but or have them come over to, to Warsaw and pick them up. But what you've done, you've just extended the fight from Poland, to Germany, to the United States. It makes no sense to me to do it. Or fly them into, uh, you know, to Lviv and just leave them there and say walk out because the airplanes are what they're used to flying. They're not modified for American standards. The Russian airplane is the same airplane they're currently flying. And it's not that, I mean, it's an advanced fighter, but it's not the most advanced fighter they've got, so they can transition pretty well. But I'm like you, it's like, this makes no sense to me. There's just something about this that this was kind of dumb. (laughs) You know, dumb is a word that keeps coming to mind when we talk about Tony (laughs) Blink. I'm serious, General. I mean, uh, this is an amateurish administration, whether it's domestic policy or foreign policy. There is nothing about them that uh, exudes gravitas, uh, co- that, that uh, inspires confidence. Uh, I can't think of a thing they've done correctly. And now they turn this crisis in Ukraine into an opportunity with the banning of Russian oil, into an opportunity to push their green agenda and convert to electric cars, for God's sake. These are stupid, stupid people running this government. Yeah, and I thought they were supposed to bring the uh, 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 the adults back into the room. You know, I, I guess they they forgot about that one, but it, they said they were going to do it. And historically, when when you look at them, uh, this is the same crew that was there during uh, uh, the the I'm sorry, the uh, uh, Obama administration. Most of those players were all there before. You know, and remember, Blinken, there was a lot of talk about Blinken, not, he should have been confirmed years ago, and uh, and 
John McCain said that on the Senate floor that, you know, it's, it's all public record that he thought that Blinken was a real hazard to America. Well, that's coming true. And, you know, it's almost like it's all the second team that you've got playing there. You know, I'm not you said Blinken. I'm just not impressed with Jake Sullivan either. But well, Jake no. Sullivan was <laughs> the national security advisor to the vice president when he was with Obama. So it's a lot of the, the players haven't changed. That's one thing I admired about Trump. He brought in a lot of new people. Now, some of them, you know, some were hit or miss. But the fact is, at least let's look for other players that the normal staff that you see, the transfer of power, you know, say, okay, Republican right. administration, K Street feeds that. The Democrat administration, K Street feeds that. Let's go look for new players. And he just brought everybody else that he's been there with before, which I think is a huge mistake. Yeah, I, I, I just think about when you, reminding us, that Biden was vice president under Obama. We have to think back to 2014. Obama lost Crimea. Uh, we have to think back to 2010 uh, when uh, Obama uh, turned over 20% uh, of the uranium reserves by approving the Uranium One deal, giving the Russians 20% of US uranium reserves. And then we buy from the Russians our our nuclear fuel uh it, it's just it, it's it's madness and now this president is cutting off russian oil because which comprises three and a half percent of our oil it, it's nothing and it's theater and it doesn't mean anything and the fact is we're still left with the ex, the existing situation in which i think uh g gives both putin uh the Zelensky plan gives putin an off-ramp it gives us an off-ramp, and it's and it saves Ukraine. It, it just sounds like yeah. it's the right thing to do to me. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, it, by the way, I have to say this because I've said this many times. You know, you look back, and Bob Gates made an interesting comment when he was the former Secretary of Defense for Obama, and then also Director of CIA. He said, "Remember, he's the guy that said Joe Biden has been wrong on nearly every national security decision in the last forty years." And I thought, yeah, I had to laugh about that. But I also remember when a crisis situation arose and they were going after Osama bin Laden, the guy in the Situation Room that says, don't go to President Obama was Joe Biden. Yeah. So that kind of tells you what kind of leadership you've got in, in place. And I believe, I'm a, Lou, I'm a big believer in patterns, patterns of, you know, everybody goes to certain, you know, the same grocery store, walks down the aisles the same way, or buys their gas the same place. Leadership's the same way. You set patterns. And his patterns that he has said over the last 40 years are not good. Yeah. Well, on that uplifting note, <laughs> General. <laughs> our, Sorry. Our, our, no, not at all. Uh, our convention here is to give all of our guests the, the last word. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you uh, for your concluding thoughts as we, as we uh, are, uh, well, you know what, before I do that, I just want to share with you this poll to get your reaction to this as a, uh, is a, a man with a distinguished military career, uh, national security uh, advisor. And this was the Quinnipiac poll. And it turns out two remarkable revelations to me. One is that a majority of Republicans and independents surveyed would stay and fight were Russia to invade the United States. And on the other side of that question, a majority of Democrats polled said they would flee not stay and fight if Russia were to invade the United States. What is your takeaway of that, Paul? 
Yeah, that's right. I read that today, and I was incredibly disappointed because Quinnipiac is is a, a Democrat leaning poll, so those numbers are probably worse than you said. And when you think about them, the Democratic numbers, I mean, yeah, it's appalling because it was primarily the young group. When you looked at the, yep. you had the age differentiation, and it was the young people that said that. It's disappointing. It shows that we've kind of lost our way in the in the young side, in my opinion, on the Democratic side. Uh, because if you're not willing to fight for your country, then what are you willing to fight for? And and I, I I'm one of those I kind of bleed red, white, and blue. And, mm-hmm. and you know this this nation has got warts. We've had warts. I understand it, but learn from it. Don't destroy it. Don't hide it. It's fine. You know. And I've, I've been a big believer in learning from it. This whole thing about cancel culture, or of stripping uh, names from buildings or tearing down statues is appalling to me. It, it, and we shouldn't be doing that. And, and frankly. That survey is an indicator of what that kind of group thinks about America, that it's not the nation that we stand and fight for. And it's, it's very candidly, it's it's quite disappointing to see that. And we're going to have to turn it around. Somebody's got yeah. to turn it around because, you know, there will be the day, I guarantee you, it happens in history. There is going to be a day when we have to fight for our nation again. Yeah. And I, I think that's, uh, and I'm, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give you that opportunity for your concluding thoughts as as we wrap up here. I do want to say uh, the reason I brought that up is that we've got a lot of repair work to do in this country. Uh, The people listening to this podcast are patriotic. I can assure you of that. Uh, They bleed red, white, and blue. Uh, and they believe in every founding value, uh, the American way, truth, justice, say what you mean, mean what you say, and back it up. Be plain spoken. Uh, we've got to fix the society, and the only way to do it is to engage. And what I'm afraid of is right now uh, going to war with the commander in chief we have, a body politic as divided, is my greatest concern. Not the enemy. My greatest concern are the weaknesses within, which we have, uh, which we've not only tolerated but uh, uh, nurtured. Uh, and we've got to fix all of that. Your concluding thoughts, General, and I just want to say real quickly, I appreciate you being with us. No, and th- thank you very much for having me, Lou. And what's your last sentiments? I echo completely. I-, I just think we're living in some really dangerous times right now, and the dangerous times are because I believe it's a lack of leadership at, at the senior levels and commander-in-chief level. And, and you know, what, my experience is aggressors always fill voids, and if they see a void and weakness and leadership void, they're going to try to fill it. And I think not just the weeks ahead are going to be dangerous for the nation because you do know what Putin's going to do. But the next couple of years are going to be dangerous because this isn't the first problem we're going to see. Um, we've already gone through Afghanistan, the debacle there. We look see what's happening on our borders. We're seeing what's happening with the economy. And uh, we're seeing what's happening with, with Ukraine. And I just remember as we're going into uh, – uh, into getting Soleimani. I remember Gina Haspel, the director of the CIA, looked over this when we were making the decision to go, the president was, and she says, okay, buckle up. And I know what she was getting at. I think what I have to say to everybody is, buckle up. We're going to have to go through some hard times. Well, and I know we can handle it, and I know we will. Thanks, General, and thanks, everybody, for being with us. Our guest tomorrow will be Congressman Scott Perry, member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. We want to invite you to sign up for our Great America Show Advisory and Newsletter. Simply go to loudobs.com, that's loudobs.com, 
and click on the email newsletter button. It's as simple as that. And we'll send you our advisories and alerts as well as our weekly newsletter. I don't want to overstate anything, but I'm pretty sure you will absolutely sense at least a small positive change in your world outlook. We invite you to join us and stay in touch. Thank you. That's ludobs.com. Thanks. God bless you. And God bless America. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America Podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.